0: So we're going to talk about the story of Ruth today, the, a passage, that a narrative that is familiar to all of us. And I think most of us think of the story of Ruth as something like a Hallmark romance movie, where there's really no drama. I mean, one of the things that's striking about the book of Ruth is that there is no villain in the story. And almost all of Old Testament narrative, there is a villain that God is helping Israel to overcome, or helping the people of God to overcome. But there is nothing like that in Ruth. And the story has some some drama in it, but most of the drama is low-key and a little scandalous. So it's a Hallmark movie with a little bit of an edge, because there's a scene, which I'm not going to preach about this morning, in which Ruth, in order to convince Boaz that she wants to be his wife, sneaks into his house at night and gets into the bed with him, which is pretty persuasive, apparently, because then <laughs> he does marry her, right? So uh, it's a little, it's an R-rated Hallmark movie, I guess. But it's actually, I think, the most, when, when you read it with a little more attention to what's actually happening, I think it's the most subversive book in the Old Testament. It's the most prophetically critical book in the Old Testament. And I want us to think this morning about that and what God might be saying to us that may on the face of it seem rather tame, but in fact is anything but tame. And I I want to kind of attend to this story as best we can. We're not going to read all of it, but we are going to read a good chunk of it. So if you'll you'll look in Ruth chapter 1, I've got to find this really quickly great story about my wife. She's going to kill me when she hears this. I was speaking at a church, oh man, years ago when we were still in college, guys, and she she had gone with me, Julie had gone with me, and I was going to preach from Second Thessalonians. And so I have everyone stand to read, and Julie stands up with her Bible, and for some reason she blanked about where Thessalonians was. She said, I couldn't remember if it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. She's like, I've memorized the books of the Bible, I've read Thessalonians, but I just couldn't remember. And so... She's thumbing through, and the woman standing next to her reaches over and takes the Bible away from her, finds Second Thessalonians, and hands it back. So don't do that to anybody. That's, 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 not, the, that's not the most hospitable way to welcome visitors. So the, the, story, the story of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Remember that, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, they, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then, once her children are dead, she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. Now notice notice that line. She had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had given his people food. This is striking because you would think that being in Moab, which is one of Israel's arch enemies, in fact, other than the Philistines, Moab is probably the most hated people in Israel's history. And yet even in Moab, she hears the word of the Lord. This should be comforting for all of us, that no matter where we are, even if we're in Moab, the the Lord's word can reach us there. So she hears that the Lord has returned to Bethlehem and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security. And each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. Now another thing I love about this story is that Naomi has lived in Moab long enough that she's learned to love even Israel's enemies. They've become family to her. And so in this moment of her going back to Jerusalem, she, there's a reason they can't go with her. A Moabite is forbidden to enter the land of Israel. And she knows that she's taking two Moabite widows with her. And they won't be allowed to enter. So she encourages them to go back, but she encourages them to go back and prays that her Lord, her God will be faithful to them, even in Moab, which is, I think a beautiful testimony of how to relate to those who are on the face of it, our enemies. They weep aloud, the three of them. They said to her, no, Orpah and Ruth say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters over and over. She's saying this. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. It's been more bitter for Naomi than for the two of them, because they hadn't believed in Naomi's God, and Naomi did, and God did not come through for her. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. And she's having to come to terms with the fact that in your case, in the case of these two daughters-in-law, they suffered the loss of their husbands, but they didn't suffer the loss of their confidence in God. She's lost both her family and her confidence in God. It's worse for me, she says. And the hand of the Lord has been against me. Then they wept aloud again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law But Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. To her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. And then they start together toward Bethlehem. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they had arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Because here is a woman coming, an Israelite woman, coming with a Moabite woman. And it's scandalous. And the whole town is a rage. Every Facebook page is exploding with rumor. And here, here they come, the two of them. And the women say, is this Naomi? Is this the woman we knew before the famine? Is this the woman we knew when Elimelech and her two sons were still alive? And she says, no, I'm not the same woman. Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought me back, but he brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite. Notice, the author wants you to notice, she is a Moabite. She returns with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, What ends up happening is Ruth is working in one of the fields. The man who owns that field is a man named Boaz, who's not next to kin, but is related in a a kind of broader way to Naomi's family. And eventually Naomi and Ruth connive their way into Boaz marrying her and giving her a son and restoring the kind of lineage of of Naomi's family. But I really want to focus just on the story of the two two women, Ruth and, and Naomi. And talk about the ways in which I think they body forth for us a, a prophetic word for right now. A word that we all need to hear. Because this, this is the situation I think we're in. So let, let me set up a kind of view of what I think is happening right now in our world. And then talk about how this book might speak to us. So my sense is we're in a difficult time. Every generation has difficult times. This one happens to be ours. We're in what everybody is calling a post-truth era. Where you no longer can trust what's being said. Or even trust what you have seen. I know you probably saw on the news or, or saw on social media the, re- the recent kerfuffle about whether or not the CNN reporter slapped away the hand of the, inter- the House intern during the press conference. And, of course, it turns out some people say they have video of him sharp, sharply chopping down on her arm to hurt her, and other people say that the video is doctored, that they actually manipulated the film so that what you're seeing isn't what you're seeing. And we've come to that place in our exchange with each other that we can't even trust what our eyes see. We can't trust what is happening and what we see to be happening right in front of our eyes. And our divisions, therefore, are getting broader and wider and deeper in which there seems to be no way for us to communicate with people who don't already agree with us. And in a situation like that, and that's, I think, our situation in a broad sense across our culture, when you can no longer communicate with people who don't speak your language and already already believe everything you believe, then the work of God is immobilized. Because everything about the work of God is about crossing those boundaries and crossing those barriers and going to the other, no matter how strange or difficult it may be, and bringing them into the family of God, ushering them into the presence of God. So when a society reaches the place ours has reached, where you cannot cross lines of difference, how is God going to do his work in the world? Right? we' we're, we're at that place where the very work of God in the world is threatened, and it's we're we're under a siege of of lying and deceiving and manipulating each other and I think there are two two ways of approaching this that we want to reject outright, but I think there are also the two ways that are the most common in our churches. On the one hand, I want to talk about a kind of Christianity that I see that reminds me of the book of Proverbs, and this kind of Christianity is It's really simple. It's far too simple, in fact. It's naive. It doesn't really accept what I'm saying, that the situation is dire or difficult. The people who are Christian in this sense, they think that the world is exactly what God wants it to be, like the book of Proverbs does, in which if you do the right thing, you always get the right response. And if you get the right response, you end up with the blessing that you desire. And if you do the wrong thing, you always get the response to the wrong. You get punishment and judgment. So in this account of things that's cliched and simple, the, the idea is God is the resource that supplies me with everything I need to have the life I want. That's, that's the way God is envisioned. And, and Proverbs, I think, symbolizes that. Think about how over and over in Proverbs you've got this description that the righteous man prospers and the wicked end in ruin. So that what you sow, you reap. And God is there to make sure that what you sow, you reap. And there are all kinds of versions of Christianity in our world right now that are like that. They're just... So sure that if they do the right thing, God will make sure they are protected. And the enemy may come against others, but it won't come against them. Others may suffer financial crisis, but they will never suffer financial crisis. Other people may may be sick and die, but they will not be sick and die. Other people may have broken relationships, broken marriages, but we won't have broken marriage because we're going to do all the right things. We're going to come to church and pay our tithes. Go to the soup kitchen around the holidays and, and make sure that we're listening closely to the sermons and taking notes. And we're doing the right thing, and we know that, therefore, the right thing will come to us. But that's not true. It's just not true. God is not a resource that will predictably give you every blessing that you desire. God is not going to come through every time. And just like we saw in this story there are times of suffering even for those who are closest to God. I remember a missionary from Haiti speaking at our church when I was young, and he read the psalm that says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And then he said, obviously this writer had never been to Haiti, because in Haiti the righteous are forsaken, and in Haiti they do beg beg for bread. So there's there's this way in which you can come to a, a kind of Christianity that's naive and cliched and simple, and it's not true. And we'll never be able to deal with the brokenness of our society and the brokenness of our culture and our communities until we leave that way of thinking about things. Until we reject the idea that if we do the right thing, we always get a blessing. And if we do the wrong thing, we always get a cursing. And that God is always going to guarantee that we get the outcome we want. That's just not true. It's just not true. And you have to reject it. But on the other hand, there's another kind of Christianity we have to reject which I think is represented by the book of Ecclesiastes. And this kind of Christianity is mostly concerned with destroying that type of Christianity. It's mostly defined by what it is not. So where this Christianity is naive and cliched, this Christianity is cynical and hypercritical. This Christianity is deeply aware of all the corruption in that kind of Christianity, but no longer has any hope that God can do anything about it. So in this kind of Christianity, and, and I, I want to be careful here. I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes, and if we had a classroom setting or, or we were sitting across the table at dinner, I could be a lot more nuanced. But just track what I'm saying here. I think this kind of Christianity is attractive for people who tend to lean left politically and culturally. And this kind of Christianity is pretty common for people who tend to lean right in politics and community because these kind of people believe in law. They believe that order matters and laws matter and borders matter, and authority figures matter, and the police force matters. So these kind of people tend to, be, to get upset when there's any challenge of order. These are the people that hashtag blue lives matter whenever they see a hashtag of black lives matter because what they're, what they're appealing to is order. But these are the people who are so aware of all the corruption in all the orders of the world that they're the first to jump on bandwagons like black lives matter. Because they see that as telling the truth about the corruption of the world. But what they cannot do is point to God in a way that's hopeful for both groups. All they can do is critique that group. They see all the errors in the Proverbs Christianity. But they no longer have any hope in a living God who can redeem us and rescue us from ourselves. And rescue us in such a way that our enemies are delivered with us. So what we need is an alternative to Proverbs Christianity and Ecclesiastes Christianity. And wherever you happen to fall this morning, and I guarantee if we were having a real conversation, some of you would have to admit, yeah, I kind of lean toward Proverbs, and others of us would have to admit, yeah, I kind of lean toward Ecclesiastes. But what we need is what I'm going to call a Psalms-like Christianity, where we face the hard truths, we say the hard truths, and we love God anyway. We face the hard truths, and we say the hard truths, and we love one another anyway. And we reject any kind of simple account of the world in which God always comes through. And we reject cynicism and hopelessness. And we refuse to be people who only see what's wrong with everyone else. We're going to see what's wrong, but we're also going to see what's right. We're going to see the ways in which our neighbor has failed. And we're going to see the ways that we have failed. And in the midst of all that, we're going to trust God. That's what we're after. And I think the book of Ruth shows us how to do that. How God gets us to Psalms, and away from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, away from that, those kinds of Christianity. So whoever you are and wherever you fall, in terms of your allegiances and your alliances, hear me, the Lord wants us to move to a place where we can be truthful, but also faithful, where we can be honest, but also loving, where we can be fully aware of what's happening in the world and trusting God in the midst of all that to, to respond to, what, to the needs around us. Everybody still with me? So, so just a few things about Naomi, and then a few things about Ruth, and I'll, I'll be done. Get out of your way. Naomi loses almost everything. And as I've been saying, her story is a, is a stark reminder to us that lack and loss come to everyone. Even if you believe in God, even if you're faithful to God, you will suffer. There is no way around it. God's people do not suffer less Than anyone else, they suffer more. Naomi makes it clear I have suffered more than you have because I not only lost my children and my husband, I also lost my vision of God. I thought God was like this. I thought He would always come through for me. I thought He would always be there to comfort me, always be there to make sure that everything went the way it needed to go. And it turned out I was wrong. I was wrong. And we have to come to terms with the fact that many of us have been given a Christianity in which we think trouble will never really come to us. It may come near us, but it won't come all the way into our house. Trouble will always be outside on the porch maybe, but it's never going to sit in my living room. It's never going to evict me from my own house. But hear me. Christians suffer more than anyone else because we not only suffer the normal experiences of life, we not only all get sick and all die and all experience abandonment and rejection and betrayal, we not only fail ourselves and fail one another, but also in the midst of all that, we lose touch with what we thought was God. And our faith is constantly under attack as well. That is immensely, immensely painful. But it's true, nonetheless, that if if you walk with God... You're not going to walk around trouble or away from trouble, but right into the heart of it. Because not only are you called to live faithful in your relation to God, but you're called to come alongside those who are hurting. So you have not only your own hurt and the hurt of your faith being tested, you've got the fact that you're entering into other people's hurt because that's what you're called to do. And so to be a Christian is to suffer lack and loss in ways that are unparalleled because of our relationship to God. God is not going to save us from the harshness of reality. He's going to save us through the harshness of reality. God is not going to save us from the harshness of reality, but through it. Another thing about Naomi that I love is that she lets Orpah go. Now, a lot of sermons about Orpah and Ruth make it out like Orpah is the unfaithful one and Ruth is the faithful one. And, I, and there's probably some truth to that. But what I, what I love is that Naomi is willing to let Orpah go. Because I think there's something about maturity, something about coming into Christ's likeness in which you stop clinging to people in ways that possess them. I think this is true for parents. I think this is true for spouses. I think this is true for communities of worship. I think there's something really unhealthy when we, when we hold someone so close that we literally cannot let them go. There's something about that that is, I think, deeply unhealthy. You know, there's a scene after Jesus' resurrection in which Mary Magdalene falls at Jesus' feet and holds him, clings to him, and he says, do not cling to me. I must ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. But go and tell your brothers and sisters what you've seen and what I've said. And I think that just like we're not supposed to hold on to the Jesus we remember, we have to be careful not to hold on to people who need to be let go, who need to be released. And there are some of you, some of us in this room right now who have people in our life that we're clinging to We need to let them go. Let them go in God. Trust that God has a future for them. This is one of the things, notice Naomi says, I want you to return. I want you to be blessed. I want you to find husbands. I want you to have children. She's wishing a future for Orpah, and she lets her go into that future. And I think that's absolutely essential to be the kind of Christian who can work across these lines of differences that are drawn all around us. You have to be the kind of Christian who can live with open arms. And trust the people that God brings to you, and recognize the moments in which you need to let people go. But the thing I love most about Naomi is how truthful she is about her condition. I was full, and now I'm empty. I used to be Naomi, and now I'm Mara. And I think that we're so afraid of being honest, because we fear that if we're honest, it's a sign of a lack of faith. We're afraid to talk like Naomi talks because we're afraid what that will mean is God will judge us for not trusting him. But hear me. Hear me if you can hear anything at all. God does not want you to put spin on your own story for his sake or anybody else's sake. You don't have to pull any punches when you're talking about what's wrong in your life. Do not think that saying the truth about what's happening to you is in any way displeasing to God. Say it in all of its ugliness, in all of its darkness. And don't be afraid to say it. And don't even fear saying that God has been harsh with you. Do you hear? what? That's what Naomi says. The Almighty, the Almighty. Now, why is it important that she calls God the Almighty? Because He's the one who could do anything. He could have kept the famine from ever happening in the first place. He could have kept her husband and sons alive. He could have brought them into a land of milk and honey and kept them there. But he didn't. He brought them into a land of milk and honey that then became a land of famine. They go into Moab and her husband and her children die. And what she has to say is, God has dealt harshly with me. And that's not a sign of faithlessness. It's a sign of a faith that's under attack. It's a sign of a faith that is shaken. But it's still faithful to say the truth about what you're experiencing. Don't be afraid of being honest about your condition. It's not faithlessness. You're not going to disappoint God. He knows the condition you're in, and it's perfectly right and sound to own that and to say, this is where I am right now. This is what I feel right now. This is what seems to be happening to me. Nothing is gained from being dishonest with yourself. And that's, that's what, one of the things that's so problematic about Proverbs-type Christianity is that it can never be honest because it's superstitious, and it thinks if honesty comes, if I say what I really think, about what God is doing in my life, then God will stop blessing me. But there's no, God's blessings are not directly related to your performance anyway. He sends you good when you're not looking for it. He trusts you in the midst of trial when you're not asking for it. God is going to be God in your life. You don't have to worry to make sure to say the right word at the right time every time. Don't, don't be afraid to be yourself and to be honest about what you're experiencing. And don't worry that if you are honest, you're going to get some kind of negative outcome, that God's going to punish you for that. That's not at all true. But this is not Naomi's story. This is Ruth's story. And as I said already, it's the most provocative book, I think, in the Old Testament. It's the most subversive book. Because this is a book that was written after Israel's return from exile. Now, the story is about the time of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But it's, it's published put out in, for reading during the time of Israel's return after exile. Here's what's happened. Israel sins against God, God's presence leaves the temple, book of Ezekiel, and Israel is taken into captivity and Jerusalem is destroyed. They spend all of these years, at least 70 years, in Babylonian captivity and then they start to come back in waves. And now Ezra and Nehemiah are leading a, a rebuilding project. They are making Israel great again. And they are building walls and building temples. Right? I didn't know if you were going to catch that or not. So they're building walls and they're building temples, right? But they're wearing blue hats because that's the flag color for Israel, right? So they're they're building walls and they're building temples. And their insistence is the reason we got into trouble in the first place is that we broke the law. So what we're going to do is reinstitute fierce legal standards. We got ourselves into the mess we're in. Because our laws weren't strict enough and we didn't enforce them strictly enough. And so we're going to do that. So if you read the book of Nehemiah or read the book of Esther—I mean Ezra, you see that's what they do. They reinstitute the law. In fact, they have people standing and reading the law, word for word, and the people are forced to stand and listen to it. This is you know, the passage in Nehemiah, The joy of the Lord is your strength actually comes from the story of Israel standing, the, the scribes standing and reading the law and Israel weeping because they realize they haven't kept the law and they don't know how to keep the law. And then Nehemiah says, Don't weep. Rejoice, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice that the law has returned. And they tell them to divorce their wives that they, may, that they married in Babylon and send away their children because we're going to return to keeping the marriage laws like God intended. Jews marrying Jews and no else. And if you did do that, if you married someone who's not a Jew, divorce them and send the children back to where they came from. Deportation, right? I told you this is a little, I'm, this might be my last time here. Brent Jess. <laughs> it just hit me right now. This might be too much. I might should just stop right here. This is subversive, most subversive book in the Bible, right? I'm just trying to tell you that story. So they're, they're going to deport And they do begin to deport all of these wives and children back to their Gentile lands. And this story is published right in the midst of all that. Nehemiah 13.1, do you know what it says? No Moabite must be allowed to enter the land. And guess what this story is about? A Moabite entering the land. And not only that, but being the great-grandmother of King David. Do you you hear what's happening here? So in a time in which the pressure is, let's let's become a people of rules again. Let's become people of laws and law enforcement again. Let's set standards that we do not violate. Let's deport all of the illegals. Let's deport all of those who shouldn't have been in our family in the first place. In the midst of that kind of setting, a book about a Moabitess woman coming into their land and becoming the grandmother, great-grandmother of the king that has made Israel great, nothing could be more explosive than that. Because what they're saying is, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of you who are pushing for a restoration of the law, pushing for a kind of return to the way things used to be before the exile, I want you to know that you wouldn't even be here at all. There wouldn't even be a son of David to sit on the throne if it weren't for one of the people that broke your law. I'm just telling you what the story says. I'm not not trying to make any application. I'm really not. I can't help it. This is what's in the lectionary. And so, this story comes, and and part of the reason I think the story is written the way it is to come off like a Hallmark romance, R-rated but still a Hallmark romance, is because whoever wrote this story was immediately in danger, just like I'm in danger right now. Not, they're probably more danger than I am, but still, you get the point. It's a similar situation, because these are explosive topics, right? It's touching the nerve, right at right at right. At, point of the at the quick right we are this is a threatening kind of story to tell but what the story of ruth shows us is that god is greater than god's own laws much less ours god's the one who said don't let a moabite enter the land and now god is leading a moabite into the land and if god is greater than his own laws what do you think about god and our laws and here's the good news God is creative and cunning and sly enough that he knows how to get around whatever barrier we set up. And in this case, God gets Ruth the Moabitess into the land because he has a purpose for her. And he's going to, he circumvents God is willing to go around even his own laws to bring that to pass. And that's prophetic. And what we need in this day is neither Proverbs Christianity which says, we need to be a people of rules, a people of law and order. And we also don't need people on this side of the spectrum saying, well, rules are broken and we need to be careful about what kind of laws we make and let's let's not enforce them fully. Both of those are false alternatives. What we need is to know that in the midst of whatever laws we make or don't make, God is at work and that's what matters to us. What we care about is not law-keeping or law-breaking, we care about the love of God and the work of God in people's lives. And if you're talking about anything else, then you've lost touch with reality. If you, if you will allow, your, whether you're left or right, on the political spectrum, to break you away from the intimacy with God and the intimacy with your neighbor that you're called to, something's wrong. Something's deeply, deeply wrong. So she reminds us that God is greater than God's own laws, much less ours. The other thing I love about about Ruth, and I think it's prophetic, is that she commits to God for the sake of others. She commits to God for the sake of others. Notice she says to, to Naomi, your God will be my God. But she does this knowing that Naomi's God is a God that's disappointed Naomi. If there's nothing prophetic, you remember Jesus said, if you love those who love you, you have no reward. Even the wicked do that. But if you love those who hate you, great is your reward. The same thing is true about the relationship to God. If you come into a relationship with God because God always blesses you, that doesn't mean anything. That's not faith. That's not hope. That's not love. That's just knowing where to get your money. That's just knowing where to get your blessing. Right? God is sugar daddy. That's the, or Santa Claus, if you want a less R-rated version. Right? It, that, that's, that's the problem. But Ruth knows full well, this God, let there be a famine in his own house. This God, let his own children die. This God is one that Naomi is even struggling still to believe in. And because I love Naomi, I'm going to commit to that God anyway. That's what faith looks like. Faith looks like this. God, you may or may not come through for me, but I'm not leaving you anyway. You may or may not bring me what I want, but I'm going to cling to you anyway. I won't hold to people. I'll let them go, but God, I'm never letting you go. I'm gonna, you're going to have to kick me out to get rid of me. That, that's how we have to tie ourselves to God for the sake of others because what Ruth understands is I can only come back into this land. It will only work for me if I commit to Naomi's God. But I love Naomi enough to commit to God for her. And some of you who are struggling, some of you are struggling to believe. You're trying to believe in God. You're trying to have faith. Think of it this way. Don't try to have faith because you believe. Have faith because other people need you in their lives and they need to see your faithfulness. It's perfectly acceptable to tie yourself to God for the sake of the people around you. That's exactly what Ruth is doing. She gives up her gods and comes to Yahweh, comes to the God of Israel, not because the God of Israel has done something for her, but because she wants to do something for Naomi. That, I think, is prophetic. That is prophetic. The third thing is she fastens herself to brokenness. She attaches, she not only comes to God for the sake of others, she commits to Naomi. And we need that kind of prophetic action. What we need to do is stop seeing where people fall politically, socially, culturally, and start looking at broken people and connect ourselves to them. That's prophetic. The question is not blue lives or black lives. The question is broken lives. It's it's fine for me. To me, for you to support the police, it's certainly right and good for us to celebrate the lives of those people who give themselves sacrificially. We should do that. But don't get caught up in rhetoric that takes you away from seeing the brokenness of people. Don't forget you're here As the hands and feet and face and heart of God to bring healing where there's brokenness and light where there's darkness and joy where there's sorrow and companionship where there's loneliness. That's why you're here. Don't let the devil trick you into becoming one more talking head. Close your mouth and hug somebody. And I'm almost done. Now you can clap again for that if you want. The other thing I love about, about Ruth is she speaks in the future tense when Naomi can only speak in the past tense. Naomi says, "Don't call me Mar- Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt with me bitterly." And Ruth says, "Where you go, I will go." Do you hear the difference? Because to be a prophetic person is not only to understand that God is greater than his own laws, not only to tie ourselves to brokenness, not only to commit to God for the sake of others, but to keep talking in the present tense when everybody else is focused on the past. God has something prepared for us that we cannot dare to imagine. That's what we need to be saying to people. Not to go back to the way things were or to keep things as they are, but to move into the future that God happens to have purposed for you and for me and for all of us. The prophetic people are not the people who say, where you are now is wrong, look where we used to be. The prophetic people are, look where we are now, but look where God can take us. Yes, we're in hell right now, but we don't have to stay here. He's with us and he's willing to lead us out. Yes, we're in the valley of the shadow of a death right now, but he can lead us through that, back to green pastures, back to a place where we can rest and in love for one another. God has a future for us, a plan of good for us. Let's talk about the future Let's talk about what God means for us to be. That's what Ruth is doing over and over again. She's pointing to the future that God has for her, for Naomi, for her children, her grandchildren. And ultimately, that future is the future of the King David that God is going to establish on the throne. Think about that. The future is King David. That's what God is working for. And this story that has no villain actually has this villain. And that is something inside you. That keeps you from seeing that what matters is the future that God's planned, not the past that you enjoyed or the past that you hate. What matters, no matter matter what's behind you, there's a future God has for you. And once you know that God has a future for you, then and only then can you understand that the past somehow is what He was doing. He was working in your past somehow to make this future possible. So the more you think about what God has for you in the future, the better you understand your past the better you understand what must have been happen, happening then. And last of all, once you grasp that, you can grasp what Ruth shows us, and that is, in the end, at the end of the day, this is all about God making a family. At the end of the day, that's what all this is about. Paul says in Romans 8 that God has predestined us all to be conformed to the image of Christ His Son, who is the firstborn of a large family. That's what this is about. God is making a family. And He's wanting us to see that His family is not separated by the divisions we have made. You might not want a Moabite in the family, but guess what? He apparently does. And that's what being the people of God is about. In just a moment, we're going to come to this table. And what we're going to be saying at that table is, here, we're family. We're going to fight like any family does. My wife and kids and I are living in a two-bedroom apartment, all five of us in a two-bedroom apartment. The only door is the door outside and the door to the bathroom. Listen, I love my children. I love my wife. I believe they love me. But you don't have to live in that situation very long before you realize it's a good thing we're family because otherwise we would never stay together. Right? But that's how church should be. That's what church should be like. This, isn't, this is, shouldn't be another one of your experiences like going to the movie or going to the mall. This is about family. And this means somebody in here may piss you off. But guess what? They're family. They're your family. What are you going to do about it? They got your blood they've got your name you're tied to them and you can't cut these ties these are your family when we come to this table today I want you feeling that I'm your family I might be you know the the uncle no one wants to talk about but I'm still in the family right and everybody around you that you can see and a bunch of people who aren't here this morning who should be here this morning are your family too we belong to each other so stand with me if you will I want to close by reading just a few lines from one of my favorite songs, which is really more of spoken word poetry, and I'm not going to do the whole, the whole piece, but you can start playing when you're ready, guys. The, I, I want you to hear this and lean into what has gone wrong, what you can see going wrong, not only in your own life, but, but in our world at large, but hear the hope that God is running, bringing through, and and pressing on us this morning. We are all born to broken people on their most honest day of living. And since that first breath, we need grace that we're never given. I've been haunted by standard red devils and white ghosts, and it's not only when these eyes are closed. These lies are ropes that I tie down in my stomach, but they hold this ship together, tossed like leaves in this weather, and my dreams are sails that I point towards my true north. Stretch thin over my bones and pray that it gets better, but it won't. At least I don't believe it will. So I've built a wooden heart inside this iron ship to sail these blood red seas and find your coasts. Don't let these waves wash away your hopes. This warship is sinking, but I still believe in anchors. You hear the faithfulness in that? Our ship is sinking, but I still believe in someone who calms the storm. I still believe in someone who is our anchor in time of trouble. Whatever has happened to me right now, I know there's a future because my God is already there in that future. Whatever's happening in your present can't be the end because there is a future. God has declared it. There is a tomorrow. No matter how bad your today is or how wonderful or horrible yesterday was, there is a tomorrow. So don't quit believing in anchors. Don't give up. God is with us. My throat tastes like house fire and salt water. I wear this tide like loose skin. Rock me to see if you hold on tight, we'll hold each other together and not just be some fools rushing to die in our sleep. All these machines will rust, I promise, but we'll still be electric, shocking each other back to life. Your fingers and my veins braided, our spines grown together in time because the church is made out of shipwrecks. The church is made out of shipwrecks. From every hole these rocks have claimed, but we pick ourselves up and try and grow better through the change. So come on, let's watch each other, wash each other with tears of joy and tears of grief, and fold our lives like crashing waves and run up on this beach together. That's where we are. Is the ship broken and sinking? Absolutely. Do we believe in a God who loves to build things out of broken ships? Absolutely. Is it dark and threatening? Absolutely. Is our God light and so much light that even darkness is light to Him? Absolutely. Do we have enemies? Absolutely. Can we love them? Absolutely. Do you hear me this morning? I hope you hear this coming from a a pastoral heart. I I don't want to wade into the midst of a political division and stir up trouble that's already there. It doesn't need any more stirring. I'm not trying to persuade you of anything on that front. I'm just trying to tell you, God has something bigger than that at, plan, at planned. He has something bigger than that at work. And I want to participate in that bigger work of God. Whatever happens on the small scale today, tomorrow, the election, whatever comes, it comes. I believe in God. And if the ship is sinking, I still believe in anchors. And if we're broken, I still believe in a God who builds better things out of broken things. And I'm not going to let go of that. And I don't want you to either. Let me pray for you and then Pastor Brent will come. God, thank you. Thank you that you rebuild us, that when when our ship sinks or breaks, you don't bat an eye, you just pick up right there, rebuild, refresh, renew, and release us again into whatever it is that you mean for us. God, I pray that this morning my words have been sharp and direct enough that I haven't wounded or hurt anyone, but have opened up the hearts of these people to hear what you are saying. God, that this does not sound like just another stump speech for one political scheme or another. I hope I don't sound like someone who's from Ecclesiastes or someone who's from Proverbs, but someone who is struggling to try to say what I hear the Lord saying, which is there is a tomorrow. There is a tomorrow. And we need to start living today like that tomorrow is coming. And that'll help us remember the past differently. God, give us grace to hear that and respond to your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.